So Mark chapter 8, beginning in verse 14. Now they, the disciples, had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, Twelve. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said, that, he said to them, do you not yet understand? And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village and when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. And then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes, and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And Jesus sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea, Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. And others say, One of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am. Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And Jesus strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us do that this morning, to set our minds on the things of God. Would you open the eyes of our hearts that me, we may behold wondrous things in your word this morning? Would you come, Holy Spirit, and give us spiritual sight, insight into your word and into Jesus, we ask, because it's him we need. It's him, in his name I pray, amen. Well, one of you talked with me this week over breakfast about last week's sermon. In fact, um, my friend said, 
I hope it's all right that I talk to you about your sermon. It's like, of course it is. Please help me. Um, and we had a great conversation, a very deep, rich conversation. I loved it. And, and by the way, just I want to say, I love it when you want to talk about the sermon. Come on, let's talk. Uh, or text me or email me or, or something. And, and I love it not because I want you to hear, not because I want to hear, nice sermon, preacher. Okay, that's fine. Great. Let's get that out of the way. No, I want, I want to engage with you over God's Word. Um, I want to know how you're wrestling with what God is saying to us as a church. I want, I want to hear you talk about what God is saying to you and how your heart is responding to God's Word or not responding to it. I want to hear, if, I want to hear you push back on it. I want to hear you say, I didn't like that or I didn't understand that. Let's talk because it's fun to grow together, I think. So anyway, back to my friend. Here's what we talked about. The issue was belief. Last week, I was pointing out how Mark was showing us that Jesus is the God who groans. And Mark said that Jesus sighs over our physical and relational brokenness, but then he sighs deeply over our spiritual brokenness, our unbelief. And so I was following Mark's lead when I said, so I thought, when I said that the God who groans has come in the flesh as a sign from heaven that God hears your groaning, that he remembers his love for you, that he sees you, that he knows. And then I asked you all last week, do you believe this? Do you believe that God hears your groaning? Do you believe that he remembers his love for you? Do, do you believe that he sees you in your groaning, that he knows? Do you believe this? And my friend said, I don't know. I, I resonated with what you said about God being with me and all my groaning. But when you said, do you believe this? And I said it several times. He said, I thought, well, yeah, I, I do. But then I feel guilty and ashamed that I don't believe it enough. And I do believe it. But we talked about how easy it is for me to say, do you believe in Jesus? We talked about, well, what does that really mean? Is believing in Jesus just another thing I'm not doing right, that I've got to get more right? When have I believed in Jesus enough? Of course I believe in Jesus. I'm here, right? I'm here on Sundays. I read my Bible. I'm trying to live the way he wants me to live. When you say believe in Jesus, what else do you want me to do? Those were my questions, not his. But he did go on to say, I feel like that guy who said to Jesus, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Which, by the way, we're going to look at that story in a couple of weeks in February. And that's it. Yes, that's it. Simply saying that to Jesus is believing. Because you're coming to him with whatever belief you have and whatever, whether, whatever unbelief you still wrestle with. Because... Believing in Jesus is not merely mental. Believing in Jesus is relational. It's not simply checking off the box of intellectual assent. I believe Jesus is God. Check. If, if that's all I mean when I say, do you believe in Jesus, then you're going to get frustrated if I keep asking you, do you believe in Jesus? Yes, I checked that box. What else do you want, preacher? 
But it's, but it's more than that. Faith in Jesus is relational. It's remembering him, running to him, resting in him, relying upon him. And it includes recognizing your unbelief. It includes wrestling with him over it, repenting of it, and resting in him again. So believing in Jesus is more than mentally acknowledging who Jesus is once upon a time, that you did that, you, you mentally acknowledged that once upon a time. But it's also about relationally engaging with Jesus day in and day out now. So this week I came across an illustration that I thought was helpful to me. I'll share it with you and you can decide whether it's helpful to you and then maybe you and I will have breakfast this week and you'll tell me it wasn't. But let's try this. Um, I want to look at this and then we'll go back to Mark and, and watch how Jesus is, is pressing hard on the disciples about their unbelief. But then he's very patient with them at the same time. And I'll show you what that looks like. So how many of you have ever been tandem skydiving? Really? Wow. Gutsy people. I, te I texted Nathan and Eric and asked them if they'd ever been tandem skydiving. And Nathan was, uh, no, not ever. <laughs> so I'm, I'm with him. Um, this picture is my brother-in-law, Christine's brother, Scott, uh, skydiving with his instructor. And you see that Scott is fully engaged and enjoying himself. Um, as I, so I started thinking about tandem skydiving. When you're, you're strapped in, you're attached to your instructor, right? You're strapped in, you're, you're, you're attached. So I'm already attached to Jesus. I've trusted him with my life. We've, we've jumped out of the plane. There's a level of belief and trust and rest in him already. But when I see the ground coming at me at 120 miles an hour, I begin to panic. And I say things like, pull the cord. Pull the cord, Jesus. Pull the cord, Jesus. Hello, pull the cord. Um, and then, you know, he's not pulling the cord. So I start reaching for the emergency cord. Okay, if you're not going to pull the cord, I'm going to pull the cord because right now is the time we need to pull the cord. Um, I start looking for ways to rescue myself and to escape the inevitable, pa inevitable pain that is coming at me at 120 miles an hour. So I believe in Jesus. Yes, I'm strapped to him. We've already jumped, but then I don't believe in Jesus. I'm still not trusting Jesus. Um, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones preacher way back in the 50s in Great Britain used to talk about how Christians would see God do amazing things in their life and improve his presence and faithfulness to them through that, but also to remember he proved his faithfulness to them through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. And, and they, they make it through a difficult time. And then 18 months later, they face another difficult time and they panic again. And they, and they don't believe, and they, they wrestle with where God is and if he'll be faithful in this moment. And Lloyd-Jones is just, we all do that. That's what we all do. And as we'll see in a moment, that's what the disciples did. Why are they worried about bread after all the people they've seen fed? 
So we're just like them. So yeah, I believe in Jesus. I trust Jesus. I'm strapped to Jesus by faith. But then when I see where Jesus is taking me, sometimes I start to panic and wave my arms around and say, pull the cord now, Jesus. And at that point, I'm not trusting. I'm not resting. I'm not believing. I'm not flying like Scott is in that picture, along for the ride, trusting my instructor to guide us where we need to go and to pull the cord when the time is right. Now, having said that, please don't hear me say that uh, you should just ride out this wonderful uh, hurtling to your death with joy and, and a smile, a plastic Christian smile on your face. That's not what I'm saying. Um, Trusting Jesus doesn't necessarily look like, woohoo, ain't this fun, as he takes you into whatever he's taking you into. There's always room for crying out to Jesus. There's always room for lament. But there's a difference between groaning over the pain of where he's taking you and grumbling to him about where he's taking you. And that's where I struggle. So when I say, do you believe him? I'm asking two things. Have you even been strapped to Jesus to begin with? Do you believe Jesus is who he says he is, that he's the son of God who came to save you from your sins? Have you jumped out of the plane with Jesus the first time? And the second thing I'm asking is, um, Even though you may wrestle with Jesus over when he's going to pull that cord, are you resting in him as the one who's got you in his grip even when you don't feel like you've got a grip on him? So I told my friend at breakfast that his questions about belief in Jesus and his wondering about his own belief in Jesus were perfect because that's where Mark is taking us. He's going to press into that a little more today. Jesus keeps coming back to this question of his disciples' belief in him. He pokes at it. He presses on them about it. He's very pointed about it. But he's also quite patient. Let, let's look at this again. Jesus, again, has just fed the 4,000 with seven loaves of bread. He sighed deeply over the unbelief of the Pharisees. And, and then... Jesus in the boat warns the disciples to be, beware of the leaven, the yeast of the Pharisees and of Herod. Now, I've always wondered, how do all these little vignettes line up? How do they make sense? Well, well follow along with me. Yeast seems small and hidden, but it spreads throughout a batch of dough and has a power, powerful effect on the whole batch of dough. Watch out, Jesus is saying. Don't let the unbelief of the Pharisees and King Herod infect your heart. Unbelief is powerful. It seems small and hidden, but it will spread and overtake your heart. So watch out for the unbelief of the Pharisees and King Herod, disciples. Well, the disciples hear the word leaven, and they start thinking that Jesus is upset with them for only bringing one loaf of bread on the boat. Who goes on a picnic without the picnic basket, Right? They just had seven baskets left over of bread, and they only bring one. So 
They're nervous about, do we have enough to eat? And is Jesus upset about this? But Jesus essentially says to them, see, look, this is what I'm talking about. You're worried about whether we have enough bread. After what you've just seen, you wonder if one loaf will be enough for us. Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see? And having ears do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? You can see them kind of shuffling their feet, looking around. Um, Twelve. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They're kind of going, oh boy. Seven. Do you not yet understand, Jesus says. And what is it that he wants him to see, wants them to see and hear, to perceive and understand? It's this, that the miraculous feedings of the 5,000 and the 4,000 serve to show that Jesus is the Messiah, the Lord himself. He is the bread of heaven who has come to satisfy his people. It's the presence of Jesus that satisfies. He's come. The bread of heaven has come. And you know what, disciples? That one loaf of bread that you have in the boat, that's all you need when Jesus is present. Have we not gone over this? And you know what else, disciples? That one loaf of bread you need is with you in the boat, and his name is Jesus. The bread of heaven is with you. Why are you worried about not being fed and not being filled? You're strapped to the bread of heaven. Why are you worried, Jimmy, about where he's taking you? So Jesus is getting really pointed with his disciples here. He's not messing around. He drills them with these questions. I'm going to ask them again. Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see? Having ears do you not hear? Do you not remember? Do you not yet understand? And Mark doesn't tell us if they answered him. Or even what they were thinking about his questions. He doesn't tell us. It's silent. And the point is that Jesus wanted them to examine themselves. What do you believe about me? You've stayed with me. You're, you're strapped in, but do you trust me? Is it enough for you to have me as the only loaf of bread in your boat? Is this one loaf of bread enough for you? You're here. I see you. You're with me. And at some level you believe, but do you believe? You're strapped in with me, but will you rest in me? Because where I'm about to take you will require not just a one-time, one-day back then belief in me, but an ongoing belief in me. And so Jesus is pressing you and me to honestly examine our present belief in him, our trust in him, our rest in him. Now that he's convinced them and us that they and we still have hardened hearts, that, want to, that don't want to trust him, that to some degree we still don't have ears to hear him or eyes to see him, that there's so much that we do not yet understand or perceive. 
about who Jesus is or what he came to do. Now that he's brought us face to face with our remaining unbelief, he shows the disciples and us what will, have to hap- what will have to happen for us to truly see him for who he is. And he heals the blind man. The healing of the deaf man, deaf and mute man, and the healing of the blind man sandwich the story of the feeding of the 4,000 and Jesus asking these pointed questions. Right in the middle of those two living parables of healing the deaf and mute man and healing the blind man, Jesus drills them with this question. Having eyes do you not see and having ears do you not hear? Jesus had to do something as radical as actually opening the ears and eyes and tongues of men so that the disciples would have a vivid picture of what it would take to get them to hear Jesus and his words and to see him and his work and to open their mouths to say they believe and trust him. And Mark goes on. He took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes, he laid hands on him and asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Odd, isn't it? This is the only record we have in the Gospels of a partial healing or a healing in stages like this. It's not that Jesus didn't give it enough miracle juice the first time. (laughs) He did this on purpose. He's trying to show the disciples and us something we need to see. And that is that though we see, we do not see. Though we believe, we do not believe. Though we're strapped in by faith, we're not resting in our tandem plunge with Jesus. Though we believe he's the bread of heaven, we're still worried that he's not enough. Mark says, then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. In order for us to see Jesus clearly, we need him to touch us, to restore us to sight. And that's what Mark has been showing us thus far in the book. Mark says, so far in the first half of my book, I've shown you enough to see who Jesus is. That he is the promised king who would come to make all things new. I've shown you enough for you to see him, but there's more. Your view of him is still hazy. Right now you see Jesus, but he looks like a tree walking. But in the last half of my book, I'm going to show you Jesus walking to a tree. On which he will be crucified for your unbelief and mine. Mark says. And then you will see everything clearly when you see that Jesus. Peter is asking Mark to write the story this way because it's what happened to Peter. Mark goes on. Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way he asked his disciples, who did people say that I am? And they listed off prophets, you know, John the Baptist, Elijah, one of the prophets. (laughs) They only see a tree walking. 
Yes, Jesus is a prophet, but he is the prophet who came to proclaim the good news of God to God's people. They only see trees walking. And Mark goes on. He asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. Christ means Messiah, anointed one. You are, you are the promised one. So huge, what Peter just said. So huge. But Peter's vision is still hazy. Even with this understanding of Jesus, Peter still needs clearer vision. And so, Mark says, Jesus began to teach them. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And Mark adds, and he said this plainly. <laughs> Let me be clear, Jesus says. And here's how we know that Peter's vision was still a bit hazy. Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. There's something about what Jesus just said was going to happen to Jesus that Peter did not think was true or good or right. And he began to rebuke Jesus. But Jesus, turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. Satan means adversary. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Somehow, Peter's rebuke of Jesus came from a place where he saw Jesus. Yes, you're the Messiah, but no, Jesus, this is not what happens to the Messiah. At some level, the leaven of the Pharisees and Herod's unbelief was still in danger of taking over. And it still is in us. I can believe that Jesus is the Christ. Peter would say, well, that's more than the Pharisees and Herod did. And I can still try to make him fit my agenda for what being the Christ means. Like Peter, I try to customize Jesus to fit what I think it means for him to be my Savior. I try to civilize Jesus into a sweet little Savior who is here to support my sweet little suburban Christian life. And when he doesn't play my game my way, I flip the game board and go away pouting. I even rebuke him and tell him that this is not how skydiving works. But when I treat him that way, I'm only setting my mind on the things of man, not on the things of God. Because Jesus did not come to be customized or civilized. He came to be crucified. That's the Jesus Peter and the disciples and I need to see clearly. That's the Jesus you need to see more clearly too. But oh, the patience of Jesus. <laughs> oh, the patience of Jesus with Peter and with us. 
Mark and Peter want you to see that patience too. So Jesus, just as he did with the blind man, Jesus takes his disciples by the hand and begins to touch them so that they can see more clearly. He touches them by teaching them about his suffering, his rejection, and how he will be crucified and how he will rise again. And this is the first of three times that he will do this in in the remaining chapters of Mark. This is the kind of king that Jesus came to be. This is the kind of king I came to be, Peter, a crucified king who comes to die for that very unbelief we've been talking about, disciples. For that very, very exact refusal to rest in me that I've been pressing on with my hard questions, Jesus says. And so for the rest of Mark's gospel, Jesus will take us by the hand. He'll touch our deaf ears. He'll touch our blind eyes. He'll touch our our mute tongue by teaching us that he came to suffer for our unbelief. He came to be rejected for our unbelief. He came to be crucified for our unbelief and to rise again so that we can see everything clearly. So, in order to be strapped to Jesus the first time, you must trust that he came to suffer, die, and rise again for you. Romans 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. I'm asking you, there are some of you who have never, ever, for the first time said, I confess that Jesus is Lord and I believe he rose from the dead. I, I trust him. I'm jumping out of this plane with him. First time it happened for me was when I was 10 years old, sitting in a worship service. So I'm asking you, young or old, who do you say Jesus is? Are you trusting him to be the one who suffered, died, and rose for you? But I'll tell you, while you are strapped to Jesus, there's much more to learn about believing in him, about resting in the one you're strapped to. And and in order to rest in that Jesus to whom you are strapped, you must also trust that he came to suffer, die, and rise again for you. Friends, the reason we keep coming back to the incarnation and crucifixion and resurrection and ascension of Jesus is because that's what the apostles do all through the New Testament. The entire New Testament teaches that the only way that you will continue to rest in, trust in, and rely upon the heart of Jesus is to hear his heart in his crucifixion and resurrection, to see his heart in his life and death and resurrection for you. And to let your tongue speak that life and death and resurrection over and over and over again. John says, we love him because he first loved us. So if we're gonna trust the one we're strapped into, we need to remember how much he loves us. And that is white hot focused in the incarnation, crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. Paul said, 
I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, as I'm strapped to Jesus, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So what if he doesn't pull the cord when you want him to? What if you plummet all the way down to the ground, smack into the face of the earth until you're six feet under? What if that happens? What if he takes you there with whatever it is you're facing? Have no fear. You're strapped to the one who was sent to the earth, who died on the earth, who was buried in the earth, who took the fall that you and I deserve, but he didn't stay in the earth but he kicked open the gates of hell and death and the grave and rose again on the earth and ascended from the earth and is seated in heaven waiting for the day to come back to the earth to rule and reign with you forever. That's the one you're strapped to. So if he takes you all the way down and you go six feet under, you're strapped to one who's been there and knows how to get out. Rest in him, even while you wrestle with him. Trust his heart for you, it's good. He knows the way down, but he also knows the way back up. And when Jesus asks you, do you see anything? Are you seeing me clearly? Tell him what you see, be honest with him. Jesus, I see you, but right now you're looking kind of hazy to me. And then submit to him as he touches your eyes by teaching you about his cross. Father, touch our eyes this morning, even as we come to this table. Help us to see clearly that this table displays the great heart of the one to whom we're strapped. And that though we may wrestle with you about this journey <laughs> as we hurtle toward whatever it is you have for us, would you help us to remember your good heart for us so that we can rest in some way in your love for us on the way down. In Christ's name I pray, amen.